Hello and welcome to The Roadmap, the podcast from the commercial technology team here at Bristow's. My name is Rob Powell. I'll be your host for this episode and I'm happy to say I'm joined today by an expert from our specialist data privacy team, Hannah Crowther. How are you doing, Hannah? I'm very good. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Making your debut on The Roadmap. Um, today's episode is, is a special one-off episode, and it's all about the EU Commission's decision, which um, was released on Monday the 10th of July, to adopt the EU-US data privacy framework, meaning, in essence, that personal data can now flow safely from the EU to participating companies, uh, and that's important, in the US, without the need for any additional data protection safeguards to be put in place. Now, anyone with even a kind of vague interest in in data privacy will know that data transfers to the US and specifically the adequacy of protection that the US provides to EU citizens' data has been a long-running saga with many twists and turns along the way. Um, And I'd like to start by, if this is at all possible, just briefly summarizing how we got to this point. Um, and, and then we'll go on to talk a bit about what this latest decision means, and then most importantly, how it's going to affect our clients' everyday work and their kind of due diligence practices and that kind of thing. So I'm aware this is basically like asking you to summarize the Lord of the Rings trilogy in 30 seconds, but could you kind of briefly give us a bit of a summary as to how we got to this point um, and untangle the data <laughs> transfers saga? I can certainly try, Rob. So I think the key thing to note here is this is all about um, the law enforcement access. So by the US authorities access to EU data. And so this is our third adequacy decision in respect of the US. So the European Commission said, yep, a long time ago, the US is adequate if you participate in safe harbour. And then that was challenged before the court on the basis of the US bulk surveillance law enforcement. And so the US and the EU went away and renegotiated. And then they said, yep, okay, the Commission said the US is adequate based on privacy shield, Mm. all these new protections. And then that was challenged again. So that was Schrems 2, where Schrems 2 said this privacy shield still isn't good enough. And the court said, yep, we don't like that one either. And so now we are on our third adequacy decision. And this is based on um, various negotiations between the EU and Biden, where now President Biden has done this executive order saying, "Okay, these are all the new protections that EU nationals get um, if their data is accessed by US law enforcement. So this Mm -hmm. is the sort of third attempt at saying, yep, we think that now... US law is good enough that it does offer that essential equivalence, which is required to send data to the US. And it's it's fair to say, as you mentioned, the kind of political discussions, this is a hugely political issue, right? This is why it's it's, it's been such a saga. Um, And we'll come on to to whether this might be a a new full storm uh, later on and, and how long this version, this third version might last. But I wanted to just kind of quickly summarise what this EU Commission decision actually means in in practice from this point onwards. Yeah, absolutely. So what this means is that if a US organisation is certified with the data privacy framework, the DPF, if they've gone to the US Department of Commerce and said, yep, I commit that I will comply with all of these principles, which are set out Um, by the Department of Commerce, at that point, that organisation can receive personal data entirely freely from the EU with essentially no additional formalities, um, because that compliance is then enforced by the US Federal Trade Commission. They are held to those standards. 
Um, and so from a sort of contracting with that recipient in the US has to be a US organization. Only US organizations can certify mm. with the DPF. And um, from a contracting perspective, it's very straightforward. Uh, and um, I guess one of the main bonuses of the DPF for a lot of people is that you don't need to do a transfer impact assessment right. um, because this is an adequacy decision. So that's a little quirk of data protection law, which nobody needs to worry about. Yeah. But essentially, unlike, say, the SECs, where you have to complete the agreement, sign it, fill in all those schedules at the back for the DPF, as long as they're certified with the DPF, you don't really need to do anything more. You don't need to fill in all those documents and you don't need to do your transfer impact assessment. And that, that's going to be music to a lot of ears because, as we know, that those transfer impact assessments could be quite resource heavy, quite time heavy. And it was a real thorn in the side of a lot of companies having to consider that as an option and, and carry out those assessments. So that's obviously a huge development. You know, obviously, this, this only applies to US companies that are signed up to the framework. So do we have a feel of, of you know, how common that is? is? Is that, are there five companies signed up or is, or is this kind of widespread? So I believe there's about two and a half thousand companies that are still signed up based on the privacy shield. So what happened uh, when the privacy shield was struck down under SHRAMS 2, you could actually keep your certification mostly as a kind of admin point that everyone mm. was hoping there would be a new one. So they decided, why not, instead of letting it lapse, we'll just keep it there. Um, but not everyone did that. So you've got two and a half thousand that are right now good to go. Mm -hmm. um, but I expect there will be a number, large number of other companies that over the, you know, the coming months do add yeah. themselves to that list. But as you say, it, it doesn't help with transfers to anywhere beyond the US. That should be, you know, very clear to everyone. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help if your recipient, for whatever reason, has decided not to certify with the DPS. It's not purely a tick box exercise. So they will need to put Put some resource into this so you know having said it's really good and great and good to go for that recipient it is something that they will have thought about quite carefully yeah and i guess now that it's is a kind of you know it's been rubber stamped by the eu it's, it's it, it would be understandable to see an influx of u.s companies signing up because you know commercially for them you know being a not to use the word safe harbor but being a safe harbor for eu data is obviously crucial yeah and you touched on the point there about onward transfers which is is really important to note it's not you know, I'm transferring this data to the US and, and I can, you know, my responsibility ends and I can stop thinking about it. If there's onward transfers, it's obviously important to understand that there's risks there as well. It's only yes. covering the US, the US transfer. Absolutely. So the, having said that, you know, it, it's simpler than the SECs from an admin point of view, I would say, of course, you still need to think about the Article 28 provisions, which will need to be in your contract with that third part with, with your supplier. And then they will need to make sure that they flow down lots of um, obligations to their uh, sub processes under the onward transfer provisions. So this isn't a get out of jail free card on data protection clauses. Yes. Yeah. So it should certainly make things easier. But it's, as you say, it's not kind of automatic. And you can just just do it without thinking um i mean it all sounds great when when can we start using it from when does it kick in so theoretically it's already uh, you know as of the date of the commission's adequacy decision um it was good to go and so for any organization that was already certified because they kept their privacy shield certification they can start using it um as of you know that date um, in practice, because you need to get instructions from your controller, so from the customer to receive data mm -hmm. under the transfer provision of your choice, 
it's not like immediately many suppliers could unilaterally unless they'd already built that into their contracts. So you probably are likely to see some form of notification or, or contractual requirement to do that. But, um, you know, we are, it is, it's good. It's off the shelf and ready to go. Great. And, and so just, I know we've touched on this a couple of, couple of times already, but when we're thinking practically about looking at what we need to see in the contracts from this point on, so we've talked a bit about the Article 28 uh, requirements, which are obviously kind of still there. Would we want to also see um, a commitment from the supplier that they you know, are contractually committing to being signed up to the data privacy framework on a continuing basis? So I think that is a crucial point to note is that it's quite common for suppliers to say, oh, it's all right, we don't need anything in the contract because mm. we're registered with the DPF. And Yes, from a GDPR standpoint, in terms of compliance, you know, there's no mandatory provisions regarding your transfer arrangements when you're relying on an adequacy decision such as the DPF. But of course, from a commercial perspective, you need something in that contract that gives you contractual recourse if, for example, your supplier didn't comply with their obligations under the DPF, if they were, for whatever reason, ceased to be certified. So I think it's really important that you look at that contract and you say, okay, you know, I would expect a not massive, but a short clause saying, you know, we agree you can transfer data in reliance on the DPF, conditional on you continuing to be certified and complying with those obligations. Absolutely. So you you, you really need that, you know, contractual hook, as with any claim, right, to to have some kind of recourse. Exactly. Um, And then where does this leave us in terms of the SCCs, the standard contractual clauses? How do they fit into the mixture here? Yeah, very good question. So we could do a a standalone podcast on this one, so I, but I, I won't get into too much detail. But a few points to note, I think. Um, the DPF doesn't affect the SECs and they remain valid. One thing that I think a lot of people are speculating, particularly um, because there was a recent decision against Meta that sort of threw a bit of a concern mm. about the SECs, but none of that um, took into account the new protections Uh, under this executive order from Biden. So uh, without going into too much detail, essentially, um, the DPF is based on some changes which were made to US law and the way that US law enforcement worked. And they are not exclusive to participants of the data privacy framework. They apply to any data which is sent from the EU, including data sent under the SECs. So because of this adequacy decision, the SECs themselves are starting to look quite a lot stronger. Mm. So you don't have to use the SECs. You can have a free choice whether you use the SECs or the DPF now. You don't have to use the DPF either. Mm. One thing I would say is that I suspect that um, some customers may actually like the SECs, notwithstanding all the extra formalities, including the TIA, because in practice, they do offer, I would still say, slightly more robust protections. So if you are a yeah. party who really, really cares about, you know, the substance of your protections with that supplier, you might prefer the SECs. If you're looking for something a little bit more agile, a bit more fast paced, less admin, go DPF. Yeah. And you can see that becoming a bit of a negotiation point in some ways in that suppliers wanting to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm signed up to the DPF, we don't need to do this anymore. And a customer may be, as you say, pushing for what they perceive to be the more robust measures Absolutely. for the SEC. Um, we kind of touched on it at the start, you know, there's been a couple of these kind of full storms before. How long do we think this will last? I'm aware that's a very difficult question, but I guess what's more kind of more of a concrete question is, is do you think this is going to be challenged? And, and if so, how do you see that panning out? 
So unfortunately, it will be challenged. I think um, Max Trems has been very clear that he is waiting in the wings and intends to challenge it almost immediately. Mm. Uh, it will still take quite a long time, you know, a number of years for that challenge to work its way because it would need to go all the way up to the CJU. Um, and I'm an optimist. It may not be successful. You know, mm. the US have made some very concrete changes uh, to their law, so it may not work. There is, however, a lot of discussion about how to future-proof contracts because we keep having to do this switch yeah. from transfer mechanism A to B back again. Um, so if you can, particularly for sort of quite long-term, quite heavily negotiated deals, I do think it's worth thinking about, you know, can you put some provisions in there that would enable you to switch? Um, I do think there are limited amounts that one can do in a complete vacuum, um, mm. on the basis that, you know, it might not necessarily be just a case of switching back to the SECs. And, of course, often those provisions end up being mutual and you might not want to give up so much discretion to your supplier to switch. But it is certainly mm. something that people are thinking about because of that, you know, that swirl and that flurry that we all had to do when Shrems 2 happened where everyone had to suddenly switch their contracts back yeah. to the SECs. And, of course, if you had the ability to just do that under perhaps a pre-agreed contractual mechanism, that would have been very nice. Yes. Yeah, I see. Yeah. That, and that future-proofing is a really, really practical point. Um, and then finally, I just I just wanted to touch on on the UK. You know, obviously, we are uh, unfortunately no longer a part of the EU. And, and so how does that work with transfers from the UK of, of UK citizens' data? Yeah. So sadly, at the moment, um, we can't take any advantage of the DPF. Uh, it is an e exclusively EU. However, um, the UK and the US have agreed in principle a UK extension to the DPF. So effectively entirely identical, but just mm -hmm. an extension. And the Department of Commerce has said that companies can already certify with the UK extension, but it's not valid until the UK government itself passes a um, adequacy regulation in respect of the US. Right. But because that's something that the UK Secretary of State just can do, it's secondary legislation, just regulations they just need to pass. Um, I think that's going to be pretty soon. I can't see why the UK government, you know, it yeah. doesn't need to be an act of parliament. I don't know why they wouldn't get on and do that very quickly. Right. So my expectation based on just a little bit of you know, stargazing is mm. that that will be pretty soon because I can't see why the UK would want to be left out of this. Yeah. So it sounds like that's a bit of a formality with with the way things are going and, the, of course, the special relationship. But it's just a case of uh, hopefully a case of when that happens. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks very much, Hannah, for giving us a bit of a, a whirlwind tour of, of what that means in practice. I think that was the perfect explainer. And I'm sure those points will be um, very helpful for many of our listeners just to get up to speed on where things are now. Um, if, of course, if you have any queries or would like to discuss these issues further with us, then, then obviously, please don't he hesitate to get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please do check out our previous episodes of The Roadmap, which cover other tech law related topics from procuring SaaS solutions, uh, practical tips on undertaking software development projects, and also watch this space for a brand new podcast coming soon from the Bristow's team, which focuses on all things data privacy uh, called Legitimately Interesting, coming soon. Uh, you can, of course, also subscribe to this podcast and indeed that one when it drops on whichever platform you are using to ensure you automatically get future episodes as and when they are released. 
And as always, if you have any feedback or topics that you'd like us to cover in the future, do drop us a line at the roadmap at bristos.com. So thanks very much to Hannah for being on today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. Uh, We'll be back with another episode of The Roadmap very soon. Mm -hmm.